Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. As we continue our Advent series, we look at power, and distinctively, power against the Roman Empire and power against the evil one. You're listening to Preparing the Way, Mark, by Rev. Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, I'm going to read the first eight verses of Mark's Gospel. And just to remind you, uh, we are in a series of sermons uh, that are preparing the way for Jesus. And we're preparing the way for Jesus by going to each of the four Gospels to see how they prepare the way. Because in each of the Gospels, before Jesus comes on the scene, there's some preparatory material. And each of those prepare us for Jesus in a different way. And each of those show us some of the main themes of those Gospels. Now, of course, all the Gospels have the same main theme, and that's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and how it saves us and how it saves the world. But underneath that main theme, each of the Gospels paint the portrait of Jesus from a slightly different angle. So there are different themes in each Gospel, and often those themes show up already in the prologue, and that is certainly true of Mark. As I read, you will maybe hear... One of Mark's main themes and emphases is power. Mark wants us to think in his whole gospel about power. Let's listen to the first eight verses. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way Voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make paths straight for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism for the repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes someone more powerful than I. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. So power, we hear a lot of talk about power in the church these days, and most of the talk is about how the church is losing power. You hear church members, people in the pew, talk a lot about how church is just not what it used to be. There are not as many people in the pews. Church used to be the center of everybody's life. I don't see that. Attendance is sporadic. What happened to the church, hear people say. And we ministers join in the chorus. We're as good as whining as the next person. And your ministers say things like, nobody listens to us anymore. I mean, they're more regular in picking up their favorite television programs. They make sure they watch The Bachelor and Dancing with the Stars every week, but nobody listens to us. 
People used to talk about theology. Now they just want to talk about football. How are we supposed to keep up with all the bright, shiny objects that society is putting out in front of people? We're losing power. And so we all sort of worry about these things and we complain about these things and we talk about these things over coffee and the data bears it out, right? The, the surveys come out from Pew or from Barna and they say the same thing. The church is, is losing influence, losing power. The gospel of Mark is a gospel for people, for the people of God as they feel like they are losing power. Do you know the circumstances of the writing of the Gospel of Mark. It's a good idea for Christian people as you interpret Scripture to not only know what, the, what these, these books say, but to know the circumstances in which they were written. Do you know the circumstances for the writing of Mark? I will tell you. Mark, tradition says, and people always fight about these things, but tradition says, and tradition's pretty good here, was written around 68 AD. 68 AD. And tradition says it was written by John Mark. It was a biblical figure. He was someone who went with Paul on his first missionary journey. Tradition also says it was written by John Mark in Rome. So Rome, 68 AD. If you're a Christian in Rome in 68 AD, you knew all about powerlessness and the loss of power. Things have been fine for Christians in Rome up till about 64 AD, and that's when the great fire of Rome happened. And as you know, I think, the emperor Nero blamed that fire on the Christians. And we were an easy mark because we were already viewed as outsiders. We were doing some things that were like, we didn't seem to be participating socially like normal people. We didn't go to all the patriotic festivals. We didn't go to the big celebrations because they involved worship of the emperor and we, we didn't like that, so we stayed away. So we were already viewed as outsiders. So when Nero looked for someone to blame, it was easy to blame us because we were already at arm's length. And so we blamed Christians and persecution began. The apostle Paul was probably executed shortly after 64 AD. So that would have traumatized the Roman church a loss of an incredibly powerful figure, right? And then it wasn't just Paul, there were lots of other Christians who were executed during this time and in really terrible ways. The historian Tacitus, who was a Roman secular historian writing less than 40 years after this happened, so this is probably pretty accurate, describes how the Christians were killed. This is what he writes. The deaths of the Christians was made farcical Dressed in wild animal skins, they were torn to pieces by dogs or crucified or made into torches to be ignited after dark as a substitute for light. So terrible stuff. And not every Christian in Rome had this fate. Many of them escaped unscathed. But if they escaped unscathed, they were in hiding. They were keeping in the shadows. And they had no power. They had no social power, political power, financial power. They were powerless. So it is no wonder that when Mark starts writing his gospel, power, this power for this powerless church should be one of his main issues. And you can hear that issue, that, that, that theme coming forward right in the first eight verses 
when he talks about how John the Baptist introduces Jesus. After me will come someone more powerful than me. I am not even worthy to get down on my knees and untie his sandals. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. A forceful, powerful Jesus. And Mark doesn't just show a forceful, powerful Jesus. He, in subtle ways, names two other powers out there in the world that this forceful, powerful Jesus will come against. The first power out there in the world that Mark names is something that the power of Jesus will come against is right there in verse 1. It's very subtle. We probably don't hear it as modern Christians, but the ancient Christians would have heard it. Mark names that power when he says this. The beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now that sounds innocent enough to us, but to those ancient ears, they would have heard an oppositional statement because Paul says, when he says the beginning of the good news, the word he uses is the Greek word evangel. The beginning of the evangel of Jesus. Now we think of evangel as a Christian word. You know that word, it's the root of the word evangelism and you only ever hear Christians use words like that. But in the ancient world, before it was a Christian world word, evangel was a pagan word. And specifically, it was used to describe the good news brought by the divine emperors for their citizens, their beneficence. As you know, emperors were worshipped as gods in ancient Rome. And as part of that worship, they would hold regular festivals celebrating their power and might. Like on their birthday, they'd have a big party and everyone was supposed to come and celebrate and pay honor to the greatness of the emperor. To announce these parties, they sent out messages. Those messages were called evangels. Good news of great joy. Glad tidings, people. Join us for a great celebration of our emperor from whom come all things. Here is the text of an actual evangel, an actual message, sent out to celebrate the birthday of Caesar Augustus. And this was sent out right at the time of Jesus. Listen to this. The birthday of the divine Caesar, divine Caesar, is rightly regarded as the beginning of all things. Augustus has set all things right and has given us hope. Now go read this afternoon Colossians 1 verses 15 to 20 and compare it. It's very clear that, that Colossians is in opposition to these kinds of statements. Caesar is the one from whom all things began, says the evangel. And then it concludes this way. The birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of good news for the world. Mark, sitting in his room, and hears the evangel of the emperors. The beginning of the god Augustus is the beginning of good news for the world. And he shakes his head, and he picks up his quill, and he starts writing his gospel, and he says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He crumples up the evangel of the emperors, and he begins to write his own good news. Mark is pushing aside the power of Caesar and holding up the true lordship of Jesus Christ. It's interesting. In many ways, the Gospels are not political documents. Jesus never speaks out directly against Rome. 
Jesus does not try to rally the Israelites for revolution. And you can make a pretty good argument that one of the reasons Jesus was killed was because he wasn't political enough, because he didn't overthrow the Romans. But in their own way, the Gospels absolutely stand up to political power when that power tries to take the place of God. I think of John chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus is in front of Pilate, and he's on trial, and he's not saying anything, and Pilate says to him, you remember, how come you don't speak? Don't you know that I have my li your life in my hands? I have the power to give you life or death. And do you remember what Jesus says? You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. The New Testament is respectful of political power. We're called to pray for emperors and submit to authorities. But when those authorities try to take the place of God, Jesus pushes back and the New Testament pushes back. And we are reminded that he is the king of kings, our allegiance belongs to him, and we are citizens of his kingdom. So the first power that Mark pushes against is the power of politics raised too high. But there's another power that Jesus comes against in this gospel, and really it is the main power. It's Jesus' main foe in this gospel, and that is the power of the evil one, the power of the devil. And you sense the beginning of Jesus' conflict with the devil when John announces that Jesus will not baptize with water, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. This will be a spiritual conflict, he says. And what happens right after this? What's the very next story? Jesus goes down into the Jordan River and the Holy Spirit comes on him. And what happens right after the Spirit comes on him? He goes out into the wilderness where he does battle with the devil. And through the rest of the gospel, especially the first nine chapters, over and over again, Jesus is confronting demonic powers, evil spirits, impure spirits, Ten times in the first ten chapters, Jesus and his disciples come into contact with the power of the evil one. And in every single case, the demons scatter before him. He shows his power over the evil one. And do you remember how the people react when they see that? Who is this? He gives us new teaching and he speaks as one with authority. Right? They're always celebrating Jesus' authority. Such a powerful guy, they say. He's amazing. So for the first nine chapters of Mark, you have this picture of this powerful Jesus. And you get the, the sense that this is how it's going to go. Jesus has shown he's powerful over the devil. He's shown he's more mighty than the emperor. He's, when the priests and the Levites confront them, he outsmarts them. He's powerful. He's going to go right to Jerusalem. And he's going to ascend to a throne. And all the knees will bow and he'll, he'll, he'll reign and we'll all do happily ever after. But then in chapter 9, Mark's gospel makes an unexpected turn. All of a sudden, this man who for nine chapters has shown he has power over every human power tells his disciples that he's going to give himself over to those human powers and he is going to let them crucify him. And he starts talking about servanthood. And if you want to save your life, you got to give it up. And you got to pick up your cross. And, and the first shall be last. 
And all this talk, which is so different than the power that's come before, and the disciples, they don't like it. Peter says, no, Jesus, what are you talking about? Crucifixion, we got to find a different way. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And Jesus tries to give his cross to, to James and John, and they say, no, you know, we don't want a cross. You know what we want? We want thrones. Thrones on your left and your right when you come into the kingdom. Something nice, maybe with a little bit of red velvet on them. That's what we'd like, Jesus. Jesus has to rebuke them too. Judas is so disillusioned by the change that he betrays his master. You know, at the beginning, we were doing so good. I, I, you know, I really felt like we were headed somewhere, but it's like Jesus lost the theme. He's, he's gone weak on us. And the crowds who marveled at Jesus' authority, when they realize he's not the kind of king they want, they cry, crucify. And they do crucify him. The man who has power over the demons, the man who is the king of kings, the man who has power over every earthly authority completely goes limp. He lets himself go into the courts of human power and he doesn't say anything, he doesn't do anything. It's like he just becomes powerless. Why does he do that? And then just in the moment when it seems everything is lost, at the moment when he gives up his life, a power is unleashed upon the world like nothing history has ever seen. In the blood of Jesus Christ, history changes direction. Sins are wiped away. The earth goes dark. The earth shakes. And Satan falls like lightning from heaven. And what about the powers of the empire? What do they do at the moment when Jesus gives up his life. What does Mark say? Do you remember? Mark tells us that the centurion who was standing at the cross says, surely this man was the son of God. Can you imagine how that would have sounded to those Christians in Rome who are used to seeing their brothers and sisters burned? Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. From the beginning of his gospel to the end, Mark is a gospel of power, but not power like we're used to chasing, the power of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the crucified one. I don't like the modern church trends any more than you do. I prefer absolutely full churches to half full ones. I prefer having cultural power to not having cultural power. But the power of the gospel does not depend on those things. Cultural power is great, but the power of the gospel is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Numbers, the power of a full church is great, but the power of the gospel is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And at Advent, the Holy Spirit brings us back to that truth. The Holy Spirit brings us to the edge of the manger, has us look in and says, stop complaining, stop worrying so much, look, look. Look at that tiny little weak child. That's your king. And then the Holy Spirit brings us to the cross and says, there's your victory. Here's the truth about power. Wherever two or three of you get together and hold each other up and pray for each other in the face of life's troubles, the gates of hell shake and they begin to crack. 
Wherever Christian people endure a weekend of loss, like we have endured as this church, and we get together and we say, Alleluia, and we hold each other up, and we sing our resurrection songs, and we remind each other that for us too, what seems like loss will turn into victory in a heartbeat. Whenever we do that, the demons shudder. Every time a mom or a dad sits at the edge of their four-year-old's bedside and prays with them and reads a Bible story, the devil reels like a punch-drunk boxer. Every time a volunteer at a homeless shelter takes a spoon and dumps some mashed potato on a hungry neighbor's plate, the victory of Christ is proclaimed. And every time we gather at this table and raise the body and blood of Christ and take it into ourselves, we remind each other of who the king of this world is and that his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Lord, the, the, the hymn that we learned in our nurseries is true. We are weak, but you are strong. Well, Lord, we know that you are very strong. And so today, we weak people come again to your table. We gather around your major. We gather around your cross. We eat your holy food. And we pray that your power will fill us so that we can be your witnesses in this world. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.